You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the 410th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all will recall, with the last episode, we looked at how Longstreet's attack had rolled forward and punched right through the hole in the federal line on the southern part of the battlefield. Longstreet's success on that part of the battlefield was a stunning development and was certainly a disaster for the Yankees. However, for Braxton Bragg's plan to destroy the Federal Army to work, he had needed Leonidas Polk's wing of the Rebel Army to crush the enemy left that morning so that the Yankees could be pushed south away from Chattanooga. As we know, though, Polk, there on the northern part of the battlefield, failed in that mission, So that meant that no matter how stunning the success of Longstreet's wing, the Federal Army would still be able to retreat to Chattanooga. And so, on that Sunday afternoon, although neither Bragg nor Longstreet probably realized it at that moment, the struggle had been transformed from a fight to destroy the Yankee Army into an effort to see how much it could be damaged before it escaped the battlefield. In other words, with Longstreet's spectacular breakthrough, there was no longer any question the Confederates would win the battle. But the failure of Polk's wing earlier in the day meant the rebels had lost the chance to destroy the Army of the Cumberland. So now the question was simply what price the Confederates could make the Federals pay for their defeat. And since there was still quite a bit of daylight left, that price could still be considerable. As we pointed out last time, although James Longstreet took credit for purposefully forming a five-line deep formation composed of three divisions as a grand battering ram to punch its way through the opposing federal line, In reality, it was circumstances, rather than Longstreet, that was responsible for that happening. Of course, that those three divisions happened to be formed into a grand battering ram column turned out to be fantastically good luck for the rebels when that attack rolled right through that gaping hole in the Yankee line. It was more good luck for the Confederates that the officer in command of that three-division force 
was Major General John B. Hood. That's because the 32-year-old Hood, a veteran of Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia, was one of the Confederacy's most experienced, hardest-hitting division commanders. As you guys will recall, Hood had been functioning here at Chickamauga as essentially a corps commander. However, the rebels' good luck took a turn for the worse shortly after they achieved their breakthrough when Hood went down with a wound. It happened when a federal counterattack in the Dyer Field caused a panicked retreat by some soldiers from McNair's, Perry's, and Robertson's brigades. After ordering Kershaw to take his own and Humphrey's brigade to drive the troublesome Yankees northward, Hood rode over to rally Robertson's Texans. The Texans were Hood's old command, and as he tried, through sheer force of will, to restore some semblance of order, a bullet smashed into his right leg, just below the hip. Hood, who had left Richmond and joined his troops' movement to Chickamauga, even though he still wasn't fully recovered from his Gettysburg wound, now slipped from the saddle into the outstretched arms of a courier who eased him to the ground with help from soldiers of the Texas Brigade. The bullet had crushed and splintered the bone of Hood's right femur. In agonizing pain, he was carried from the field on a stretcher. Dr. T.G.R. Richardson, the chief medical officer of the Army of Tennessee, pronounced the leg beyond saving, and, after Hood told him to do what must be done, Richardson performed the amputation. Hood's wounding was an immeasurable loss to the Confederate effort that day. His presence to direct the breakthrough was critical because the scope of the Confederate victory depended on the rapid exploitation of the advantage that had been gained, but no other rebel field commander on the scene possessed Hood's unrelenting aggressiveness. Hood going down threw the command structure on that part of the battlefield into chaos. It's uncertain when Longstreet learned of Hood's wounding, but Old Pete appointed no successor, nor did he seize the reins of command himself. Longstreet's exact location at this time is unclear, but what is not in doubt is the situation facing his wing of the army, as shattered Federal formations were fleeing in all directions with triumphant Confederate units in hot pursuit. Longstreet could probably have never expected to be so successful, so quickly, at so small a cost. The circumstances now facing Longstreet's left wing were almost unprecedented, and, unfortunately for the Confederate cause, Old Pete seemed unprepared to take advantage of the rapidly developing situation. Bragg's plan had called for the Federal left to be turned by Polk's right wing, after which Longstreet's left wing would join the attack and force the Yankees south and away from Chattanooga. But as far as Old Pete could tell, Polk's wing seemed to be making no progress, and instead the Federal line had been cracked in front of Longstreet, and the right side of the Yankee army was running away to the west and north. And so, clearly, the original plan had little relevance to the situation that was now unfolding with startling rapidity before Longstreet's eyes. It was a critical moment in the battle, 
that called for quick assessment of the options and a decisive response. The situation cried out for a bold commander to seize control of the chaos and exploit the opportunity that had unexpectedly opened up before the left wing of the Confederate Army. With Hood down, only James Longstreet could orchestrate the movements of his six divisions to exploit that opportunity. But Old Pete was not a commander who made quick decisions, and here he took no immediate action. According to his memoirs, Longstreet about this time was distracted by the arrival of Henry Benning, who rode up on an unsaddled artillery horse and was distraught because he'd become separated from his brigade of Georgians. Calmly reassuring Benning, Longstreet sent him off to find his brigade. Then Old Pete called for his lunch to be brought up, as he and Simon Bolivar Buckner rode northward through the woods between the Dyer and Poe fields to investigate the seam between the two wings of the Confederate Army. Probing northward through the woods west of the Lafayette Road, Longstreet apparently got far enough to see the enemy positions still held by George Thomas's Federals around Kelly Field. However, suddenly Longstreet and his party were then fired upon by some Yankees and forced to beat a hasty retreat. Longstreet's personal reconnaissance was more remarkable for what he didn't learn than for what he did. Unknowingly, he had begun to probe what would become a half-mile gap between the Yankees still defending Kelly Field and the shattered Federal units beginning to coalesce on high ground near the cabin of a farmer named George Washington Snodgrass. Those routed Federal units rallying on Snodgrass Hill represented the beginnings of the Yankee defensive position that would extend back along the high ground there and would come to be known as Horseshoe Ridge. Exactly. And so, if Longstreet would have realized what he was seeing in that half-mile gap in the enemy line between Cali Field and Snodgrass Hill, and if he would have moved rapidly to exploit that situation, it would most likely have changed the entire course of the action as it unfolded that afternoon and evening. In essence, he would have cut off the Yankees' chances to build a strong defensive position on Horseshoe Ridge. But we know that's not what happened, since, spoiler alert, we know that there will be fierce fighting later along Horseshoe Ridge. Right. Well, rather than realizing he discovered that vulnerable half-mile gap between Kelly Field and Snodgrass Hill, coming under fire during his scout instead convinced Longstreet that victory didn't lie in that direction. And, returning to the vicinity of the Brotherton House, Old Pete, Buckner, and their staffs sat down to a tasty lunch of bacon and sweet potatoes. Longstreet's picnic was interrupted only by the random wounding of a member of his staff by an exploding shell. Otherwise, nothing disturbed Old Pete's good mood. He ordered Buckner to bring forward a reserve artillery battalion to fire upon Yankee soldiers visible in Kelly Field, but other than that, he neither fed additional units into the fight nor issued any directions to his division commanders.
Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. While James Longstreet was kicking back and enjoying his bacon and sweet potatoes, across the way, William Rosecrans was having a terrible time of it. As y'all will recall, Rosecrans' late morning headquarters site, overlooking Dyer Field, was ideally situated for observing as much of the battle as possible. It was also front and center for Longstreet's attack and breakthrough. Even worse, the actual federal front line was obscured by tree cover so that the Army Command Group didn't realize the extent of the danger until a torrent of routed Yankee soldiers swarmed into the field. Within minutes, Bushrod Johnson's rebel battle lines stepped out of those trees into the bright sunlight of Dyer Field, a mere 400 yards from Rosecrans himself. Only then did the scope of the disaster become apparent. The moment was a stressful one, and Rosecrans reacted instinctively. It was probably at this time that Assistant Secretary of War Charles Dana saw the commanding general, a devout Catholic, crossing himself. Rosecrans didn't panic, but he also didn't exert an exterior of much-needed calm, which admittedly would have required iron self-discipline at that moment. While a number of staff officers immediately made a desperate effort to rally some of the routed soldiers, Rosecrans turned and rode south without informing the rest of the headquarters party of his intentions. This sudden departure split the Army of the Cumberland's command staff. A handful of officers tried to follow Old Rosie, but the rest were not yet aware of his disappearance. Rosecrans was riding off to the south toward the only formed federal unit then visible, Labolt's Brigade of Sheridan's Division. In that moment, only his chief of staff, Brigadier General James Garfield, and three or four other officers followed Rosecrans. By suddenly galloping off without a word, Rosecrans was split from most of his headquarters staff for the rest of the battle. 20th Corps Commander Alexander McCook who had been on his way to report to Rosecrans, also witnessed Longstreet's breakthrough. 
he had the same thought as Rosecrans about Sheridan's men. McCook reached Leibolt before Rosecrans and ordered the German-born Missourian to take his brigade and charge down the hill where he was positioned, right into the teeth of the Confederate attack. Leibolt knew McCook's order was utter madness, but he had no choice but to obey it. Leibolt's four regiments numbered less than 1,400 men, and they were facing 10,000 rebels. The result was predictable. Leibolt's men charged down the hill into yet more disaster. Rosecrans witnessed the latter part of that debacle, arriving in time to order Sheridan to try and counterattack with his remaining two brigades. However, Sheridan soon had his hands full with the Confederates of Hindman's division, who struck him from front and flank. After perhaps 45 minutes of desperate fighting, Sheridan's line was broken and driven in as well. Soon, every surviving Federal on this part of the battlefield, generals included, was fleeing westward into the foothills of Missionary Ridge to escape capture. Rosecrans had spent some time among Sheridan's troops, but as they broke, Old Rosie had no choice but to fall back as well. The time was now about 12.30, or certainly no later than 1 p.m. Rosecrans and Garfield were almost completely alone, accompanied by only Major Frank Bond, two or three mounted orderlies, and Captain Thomas Gaw of George Thomas's staff, who had been present at Army headquarters when Longstreet's breakthrough occurred. Rosecrans left word that McCook should reform Sheridan's and Jefferson C. Davis's divisions as best he could, and to deploy them so as to defend the Dry Valley Road, which led to Rossville and beyond Chattanooga. Then Rosecrans, Garfield, and their few companions rode up that same road to Rossville themselves, hoping to find some parts of the army that had not yet been crushed by the day's events. According to Rosecrans' later recollections, at this time he still had hope that the portion of the army under George Thomas's command was holding out there in and around Kelly Field and remained an effective fighting force. He also had hopes of joining Thomas in making a final stand on the battlefield. Others dispute this account, saying that Rosecrans seemed discouraged and completely worn out. Garfield, who afterward was careful never to criticize Rosecrans in public, did admit privately to friends that by this point, quote, mental and physical weakness seemed to overcome the general. He rode silently along as if he neither saw nor heard. Even Rosecrans would later admit to his brother, a Catholic bishop, that this ride away from the battlefield was one of, quote, unquote, the most trying and anxious times of his life. When they reached the junction of the Dry Valley and Chattanooga Roads, just west of the Rossville Gap, things came to a head. The party paused there, debating what to do. If they headed east, they could ride through Rossville and then turn south on the Lafayette Road. They would reach Thomas's position at Kelly Field within a few miles, assuming, that is, the Kelly Field line was still holding. However, if the party turned west, a five-mile ride would take them to Chattanooga, where much work obviously needed to be done 
after the disaster that had befallen the army at Chickamauga. To Rosecrans, the lack of cannon fire and the sound of only, in his words, a scattering fire of musketry indicated that Thomas's position at Kelly Field had also been overwhelmed. Garfield later said that he thought he heard the sound of regular musket volleys, which indicated an organized defense was still ongoing. Although William Rosecrans and James Garfield each left substantially different versions of this fateful conversation, they apparently agreed at the time that two things needed to be done. One, someone had to go on to Chattanooga and prepare for the worst. And two, someone else had to try and ride back toward the battlefield by way of Rossville and find out what had happened to George Thomas. By Rosecrans' account, he intended to send Garfield to Chattanooga, where there was much to do, and as chief of staff, Garfield had the authority to act in Rosecrans' name. However, according to Rosecrans, when he began to rattle off a string of orders to be issued by Garfield once he got to Chattanooga, Garfield confessed he was overwhelmed by the responsibility and suggested it might be better if he went back to the battlefield while Rosecrans went to Chattanooga. Well, Garfield would tell a different story. He said Rosecrans acted like a man in a fog as he agreed to Garfield's suggestion that Garfield go back to check on Thomas while old Rosie went to Chattanooga. Now, keep in mind that Garfield was a politician before he was a soldier, having served in the Ohio State House prior to the war, and he would go on to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives before winning the presidency in 1881. And as a politician, he perhaps saw more clearly than Rosecrans the incalculable damage that would be done to any man's reputation by leaving the field while a battle was still raging. In other words, Garfield was almost certainly aware that leaving the battlefield while Thomas was still fighting smacked of cowardice. In any case, Rosecrans had been running on little sleep for days now, and he was almost certainly not the sharp, calculating general he later portrayed himself to be in this moment. At any rate, whatever passed between the two men, in the end, Rosecrans turned to ride toward Chattanooga, while Garfield and Captain Gaw rode off to return to the battlefield and see what had happened with George Thomas. Well, today's episode was a tale of two generals, both of whom dropped the ball, each in their own way. With regard to James Longstreet, at a critical moment in the breakthrough, when John B. Hood left the field badly wounded, Old Pete didn't appoint a successor to Hood, nor did he seize the reins of command himself. Then, when Longstreet went off on a scout, he failed to recognize that the area he had so cavalierly reconnoitered was essentially open to exploitation. After that, he sat down to lunch. If someone was interested in rising to Longstreet's defense, they might point out that he could hardly be expected to be at the top of his game, having just arrived at the battlefield the night before, after a grueling journey, having been given command of half of Bragg's army right in the middle of an ongoing battle, 
and having virtually zero knowledge of the ground over which he was to attack. While all of that is certainly true, it's also true that James Longstreet was no greenhorn. He was a veteran officer who had led troops on enough battlefields to recognize that with the unexpected ease of his breakthrough and with Hood's wounding, a critical moment had arrived that called for decisive action to exploit the advantage that had been gained and punish the Federals as severely as possible. But rather than act decisively in that moment, Longstreet instead issued no orders of consequence, and by failing to exploit the advantage that had been gained, he set the stage for the bitter fighting that would ensue at Horseshoe Ridge. And then, with regard to William Rosecrans, his decision to go to Chattanooga instead of returning to the battlefield was fateful, not so much for the outcome of the battle, but rather for Old Rosie's reputation. When he reached Chattanooga about 4 p.m., according to witnesses, he was so exhausted that he had to be helped down from his horse and, quote, he had the appearance of one broken in spirit. Meanwhile, far from being broken and driven from the field, George Thomas was holding on and most of the army was still fighting. When Garfield reached Thomas around 3.30, he was delighted to discover that seven of the Army of the Cumberland's ten divisions, or at least parts of them, were still in action, supported by Granger, who had come down from Rossville to support Thomas. As we'll see in the next episode, George Thomas's tenacious defense of Horseshoe Ridge will earn him the nickname Rock of Chickamauga. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is a twofer. Yep, we still get asked quite a bit for recommendations for general histories of the war. And while our go-to answer is still James McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom, as far as military histories, we point people toward The Civil War in the East, Struggle, Stalemate, and Victory by Brooks Simpson, and The Civil War in the West, Victory and Defeat from the Appalachians to the Mississippi by Earl Hess. They're both great general military histories that cover all the bases and tick all the boxes as far as we're concerned. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we bring the curtain down on this episode, we want to give a shout out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade and thank them for their support of the podcast. So a big thank you to Fred R., Neil and Tom R., Cliff F., Richard N., and Bill B., and Riley M., and Marshall H. And thanks to Peter D. for his donation. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time when we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Chickamauga. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.